Welcome to the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast. If some days you doubt yourself and you don't know what you're doing, if you've ugly cried alone in your bedroom because you felt like you're failing, well, I just want you to know you're not alone and you have come to the right place. Raising tweens and teens in today's world is not easy. And I'm on a mission to equip you to love well and to raise emotionally healthy, happy tweens and teens that thrive. I believe that moms are heroes and we have the power to transform our family and to impact future generations. If you are looking for answers, encouragement, and to become more of the mom and the woman that you want to be, welcome. I'm Cheryl Gould, and I am so glad that you're here. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 5 of the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast. And if you want to know how to talk to your kids about drugs, drinking, and addiction, you are going to learn so much today from my very special guest, Amber Hollingsworth. Amber is the go-to when it comes to addiction and family systems. She's a licensed professional counselor and a master addiction counselor. She is also the founder of Hope for Families Recovery Center. She has a YouTube channel that I highly recommend and absolutely love, and it's called Put the Shovel Down, where she provides free education, advice, and support for individuals and families struggling with substance abuse problems. What I really love about this interview is Amber talks about the reasons why adolescents are more vulnerable to addiction, what the research shows about the likelihood that an adolescent will become addicted, and what you can do when it comes to talking to your kids about alcohol, drugs, and addiction. She also talks about the truth about marijuana and what we often say that doesn't work and how we can approach our kids in a way that's relational and much more effective. She also talks about the difference between consequences and punishment and what works and what doesn't and the number one most effective thing you can do to help protect your kid against addiction. I'm confident that you're going to enjoy this interview as much as I did. Let's jump in. Welcome, Amber. And I have been following your YouTube channel, Put the Shovel Down, and absolutely loving it since a mom in our community told me about you. So I've, I've been an addict of your YouTube channel for a couple <laughs> of months now. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Okay. Well, um, people usually want to know sort of why I'm in the field because most of the time people ask me first thing, are you in recovery? And I'm not in recovery in that sense of the way that I've ever had a drug and alcohol problem, but I come from a family of almost exclusively all addicts. Everyone um, in my entire family, besides my sister and myself have had um, alcoholism, drug addiction. So I grew up in it. But most people think, well, that's why you got in the field. And I I wish it was because that's kind of a romantic story. I always say that's like a really good origin story. But even though I grew up in that, 
you know, when you grow up in something, it's just your normal. You don't even realize it's different. So I didn't even realize that was the case until I was already in the field, if that makes any sense. And so I was initially a school teacher. I went back to do counseling and I thought initially I would do school counseling, but I couldn't afford to take off a whole year and intern to finish my master's degree. So I switched up and did an internship in community mental health, happened to be in substance abuse, um, where I got an internship and here I am. But you know what? Sometimes the universe puts you where you're supposed to be because I, I would not want to do anything else. I love it. You just sometimes, you know, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So yes. I feel pretty strong about it. <laughs> yeah. And you share, I love about your story, how one of the ways that you rebelled was to do well. Was to do well. <laughs> <laughs> and really work hard and yeah. Cause there was, that's right. Hard. I always yeah. say, you know, when you're, when you're that tween and teenage, you're going to find something to go against. And my family were partiers. We, they were the cool family. <laughs> I didn't really have any rules. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know, like when I grow up, I'm going to make good decisions. Not like you guys. I'm going to be responsible. That was my rebellion. Isn't that the lamest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> that's so lame. That's what we want though for our kids, right? But, yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, you want to do the opposite of it when you're that, when you're that age. That is so true. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to talk about, you talk about so many helpful things, but I want you to explain the adolescent brain and why it is more susceptible to substance abuse. That's such a good question. And I think that there's probably a hundred reasons why the adolescent brain is more susceptible, but I'm going to give you three really good ones. How's that? Okay. And so, um, The first thing, and a lot of people know this, but the frontal cortex, the front part of your brain, which is the decision-making part of your brain, is not fully developed until you're in your 20s, somewhere around 26 for for boys. And so that's the part that allows us to decide, you know, make responsible decisions that says, you know, only drink this much, or maybe now's a good time to stop, or maybe I shouldn't do that. So you're working with the the software isn't fully working just yet. It's kind of in beta, I guess you would say. So that's a limitation of the adolescent ability to put limits on what and how much they're doing. So so you have to sort of keep that in mind and then layer in a couple of other things on top. Developmentally, adolescents are sort of hardwired up and their brain chemistry actually changes when you're in that, when you're in those years. And your fear response goes down, which makes your risk taking, um, even sort of neurobiologically go up. And the reason for that is, is because the universe is trying to get you to sort of split from your parents so you can start becoming an adult. So we're wired that way to learn to take risk in adolescence so that we can sort of, you know, gain those skills, make our own decisions, stand on our own two feet, make mistakes and that sort of thing. And so when you combine that increase in risk taking that happens developmentally, that decrease mm-hmm. in that or that limited ability of that frontal lobe, that's kind of a bad combination, especially when it comes to substance use. And then I think that third way that the brain is is wired up for it is because what we know about addiction now is that it tends to happen to people after they've had some kind of major unwanted loss or they're under a tremendous amount of stress. And if you think about those junior high and high school years, 
that's the nature of the whole thing. You know, you're going through your first breakups. You're going through where all the girls decide, the one girl decides they don't like you and now nobody will talk to you. Everything about that time period in your life is so stressful. There's a lot of, you have a lot of your very first losses going on. You have an insecurity. So from a psychological standpoint, that's where people are vulnerable. So if you think about, if you put those three things together, you really have a perfect storm. And what the research says is the younger you start, that's the thing that's most highly correlated to whether or not you develop a problem is the age at which the drug and alcohol you starts. So it's just a bad combination of things. Okay, so say say more about that. If you start younger to start using, mm-hmm. that research shows that you developing an addiction is a lot higher. So statistically, the thing that has the most impact on who does and who doesn't develop an addiction, it really is the age at which they started using. And so once you start using substances, your emotional growth stops. So we had all those sort of precursor factors that we just talked about. But then once you introduce the substance, especially if the person starts to use that as their coping skill, and a lot of them do, especially like, you know, smoking pot and stuff like that is what a lot of young people do. Then they don't, they don't develop those emotional skills, that um, resiliency that you're supposed to be developing during that time. And so a lot of times when you're parenting a a kid that's this age and you know eventually then they're 17 18 19 20 24 and you're like you know but they won't pay bills they won't launch they just won't do it and it's because emotionally they really are just like dealing with a 15 year old I can usually tell when someone started using because you can tell that's kind of what you feel like you're dealing with emotionally you can tell that age like they're yeah stuck at that age so if they start (laughs) using at like 13 or 14 but you're seeing them at like 25, they still feel like they're 13 or 14 because that's where they are emotionally. Yeah. It makes, it makes so much sense. So how do we talk to our kids? What do we do? Because I know that there's moms that they worry about this, like, oh my gosh, my kid might have an addiction or I don't want them to have an addiction. So what can we do to have it begin to have that conversation? That's such a great question. And it's a delicate matter. And it's almost like, walking a tightrope in the way that you handle it. You definitely don't want to be overly permissive. Like a lot of parents from good intentions, they'll say, well, I want to teach my child to drink responsibly in the house. Or if they're doing it here with me, you know, they'll be safer or I'm going to let them have the party and take the keys, which makes sense on, on the surface. But what you can't control is what is happening biologically in that kid's brain when those substances are being introduced. So a lot of parents with those really good intentions, they make decisions like that, really trying to do the right thing, but not fully understanding the full picture of the biology and the psychology of what happens. So one thing is, is you don't want to, you don't want to be the parent that's trying to teach you how to do it responsibly. They don't have the brain hardware to do it responsibly. Mm -hmm. They literally don't have the mechanical parts just yet. So that's one thing. But you also don't want to come at it crazy hot and heavy from that other end, either of just attack and just sort of fly in at 100 miles an hour because then you're going to hit that adolescent button. of Then the wall comes up. And the next thing that happens is this, you get caught in this power struggle. And so then the drug use 
becomes part of the power struggle and they can't see it if it's causing problems because they're so caught up on being angry with you and blaming you and, and, you know, feeling like, you know, other moms don't do that and you're just uptight and no one else cares about this and you get locked in that war. And the longer you stay locked in that war, the longer the problem will go on. So it really is this delicate balance. You almost have to come at it from this place of you're not condoning it, but but you're not going to try to come at it and lock it down, you know, in some kind of crazy, fast, overly strict way. You want to ask questions. You want to be curious. You want to keep that dialogue open. Um, and I know that that feels against every instinct that we have. Yeah, because so much of what we do is fear driven. We get scared. And then what do we want to do? We want to clamp down and try. We want to control it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of parents will sort of go, they'll, they'll try either what I call like the scared straight tactics, oh. which is to sort of, they'll start, you know, texting the kid links to articles about this and that and black lungs and all this kind of stuff. But that doesn't work on kids either because they haven't lived enough life for very many bad things to have happened to them. They have this sort of Superman complex. I always say you can scare adults, but you can't scare kids. You know, you could tell me about a bad thing could happen and I would think, oh, that would definitely happen to me, you know, but kids don't work like that. So the scared straight thing doesn't work. And and those are the, those are generally the ways that parents try to come at it. Or they say, well, it's illegal. And that's probably, although that's true in some situations, but it's, it's probably the least effective argument. You have to keep it really personal. How is it affecting you? Not how did it affect Uncle Joe 30 years ago? Not how's it affecting everybody else? Not if it's legal or illegal. It has to be a very personal conversation. Is it working for you? You know, is it causing trouble for you? And that's that really is hard for a parent to to pull off because it really you have to almost ignore all your parent instincts to do it. Yeah. And you have on your on your website, you have how to talk to your kid about marijuana. Oh, yeah. How to have that conversation. So Mm -hmm. I'll link to that because I think that that is very helpful. How do you talk to them in a relational way versus a controlling way Mm -hmm. so that they actually can hear what you have to say? And that's what most parents, I think, are facing. The parents that are your audience, I think that marijuana really is sort of that first line. And it really is a gateway drug. And it really does cause so much more problems than than it's being talked about. And it's such a hard conversation to have because the kid feels almost entitled to be able to do it. Like they literally feel like, who are you to tell me I can't do that? Like you, it's shocking when you get these responses before, you know, if we were younger and we did something like that, we would, we might do it anyway, but we would know that we shouldn't have done it. And we would understand when we got in trouble that we probably should have gotten in trouble. But these days it's a whole different mindset. It is. And it's so confusing with marijuana being legalized, too. Mm-hmm. They can use that as an excuse. Well, it's right. becoming legal everywhere. It's not that bad. Right. So having a conversation that is not controlling, but more relational. Mm-hmm. Can you just give just two examples? What would that? Sure. What would you say? Like a, a lot of times with, with those younger kids, teenagers, um, they'll say things to me like, well, everyone smokes weed. You know, that's such the common thing to say. And so I'll just be curious about that. Or they'll say something like, well, you can't get addicted to weed. It's not even addictive. 
And then I'll start to ask them some questions. I'll say, what do you, have you ever known anybody you thought had, did have a problem with it? And they'll be like, well, yeah. And they'll start thinking. And then I'll say something like, well, how do you know they had a problem with it? And they'll say, well, because like he's 40 and he lives in his mom's basement or something like that. And so you want to just come at it from that curious, um, non sort of non, you're not on the offense here, which will keep them from being on the defense. And so they'll, you you can shape their thinking by their questions that you ask. And so you can say, you know, do you see any of those kids that are doing it more than others? If they say everyone does it, first of all, everyone doesn't do it, but a lot of them do. So just agree if they say something accurate. Say, yeah, you're kind of right. And when you can agree with the points that are accurate, they'll listen to you more. So if a kid tells me that, I'm like, you're kind of right, man. Like, are so many people doing it these days? Like, give them their points. Uh-huh. And that will that will make you have credibility. If you just try to come at it like if you smoke, you're gonna die immediately or something crazy like that, then they're not gonna listen to anything you say. Yeah. And then they're just gonna argue. Oh, so yeah. it's like you're validating what they're saying. The, the parts that are valid, uh-huh. you validate and you can say, Yeah, I could understand why you might want to do that. Or, you know, a lot of women will say, Well, I do it because it helps my anxiety. Now, we know that overall it makes your anxiety worse, but it does make you feel better in the moment. So you can acknowledge those pieces that are true. And like I said, I feel like when you can do that, they'll actually listen to you because they know you're not just being like completely black and white or one sided. It's not like you won't hear anything they have to say. And then you can have a dialogue, a back and forth dialogue about it. I thought it was interesting how you made the point that smoking marijuana actually initially helps with anxiety, but long-term it makes anxiety worse. Mm-hmm. And is that because they, it ends up that they're not getting done what they need to do. So it increases their anxiety. Is that, that could be it. So that's a piece of it. It's kind of like they're falling behind, like their grades might be mm-hmm. falling behind like that, which will increase their anxiety. But so that's definitely a piece of it. Um, their family's mad at them because they're doing it. Their anxiety's increased about that their boyfriend or girlfriend may break up with them because they think you're doing that too much, which makes anxiety up. But even outside of those external circumstances on a biological level, it shifts the brain chemistry in such a way it makes your brain produce more anxiety chemical. So even on that biological level, it's making it worse and worse and worse. And so a question, if you have a kid that's maybe been doing that for a while, I can say, well, do you feel like you have less anxiety since you've been smoking for a year or, or more? You don't want to come at them and say, well, it's actually making it worse. You want to ask the questions that kind of pull it out of them. So take the things that you would say as a knee-jerk reaction and try to make it into a question. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. What is it I want them to think? What's the question that would force that answer out? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I have a kid, let's say, that's smoking pot. And you talk about the difference between punishment, consequences, boundaries. What should I do? Let's say my kid is smoking pot. Should I ground them for a week? Should I ground them on the weekends for a month? What would you tell me I should do? I think when it comes to that kind of thing, it's more it's it's more about what you don't do than what you do. And so what you don't want to do is you don't want to fix any of the messes that they make. If they're not turning in their homework, I want you to give up your password to the parent portal stop checking it compulsively, stop looking because it's going to make you feel so um, just crazy in your brain and you won't be able to not say anything. So I want you to not fix the problems on the outside. Um, 
but also if you if you do things like you can't have your Xbox, to me that's punishment. Okay. And a lot of parents say, well, that's the consequence of your choice. And I think that's just because we just use that word, the word consequences for everything. But consequences is what the universe does on its own. Hmm. Punishment is the sentence that we hand down to someone. And so, you know, failing math is a consequence, right? Um, losing your cell phone is a punishment. And, and I, uh, so many parents, we just use that word, you know, the consequences and consistency and stuff like yeah. that, that we, we really don't differentiate. The problem is, is that punishment makes people defensive and angry. And it's, it's fairly ineffective because then they just, spend their time sulking, feeling sorry for themselves, being angry with you rather than seeing the problem that's being caused. It's, it's almost like a distraction or a deflection from the learning that could happen there. I think that's so, such an important point. So they end up where they can blame us and be mad at us mm-hmm. versus feeling the impact that it's having on their own life. Is right. that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. So let's say if you, if your kid is struggling in school, you know, they're doing drugs or whatever it is. And you're trying to make sure that they pass the eighth grade, the ninth grade or whatever it is. And so you're staying on them constantly about their homework. That's almost the worst thing that you can do because what's going to happen is you're going to stay on them just enough. You're going to call the teacher enough that they're going to squeak by. And so what they're going to, when you're trying to tell them like it's messing up your life and your grades, they're not going to see that because that's not the picture they're looking at. They passed. They're just going to be angry with you because you're always nagging and on their case, they're not really going to sort of pick up on the fact that they would be failing if you weren't nagging or on their case. So I just want you to sort of want parents to let go of that and let, let the world put some of those things in place outside of something that's like an immediate immediate danger of like, you know, I always say if someone's running in front of a bus, then stop them. But if someone's, you know, making a bad decision, if someone quits a job, if someone, you know, loses their seat on the baseball team, all of those things, you really just need to let happen. And the faster you can let that happen and avoid a power struggle about it, the faster they'll see it for themselves. Yeah. Would you say, because I know that the moms really struggle to do that, to let go of that, and then actually they believe that they're helping on some level. And what would you say, like I'm, this is kind of what I'm thinking, that if we don't start doing it now, that by the time they hit 17, 18, it's going to be worse. Like right. do it, the earlier you do this and let go and let them face the natural consequences, the better. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And because that is probably the the number one most effective thing you can do to help protect your kid against addiction is for them to learn that my choice has a result Mm -hmm. and it's predictable so that they start to connect those dots that like, if I do this, this happens. If I do this, this happens. Instead of what most parents want is we want to protect when those bad things happen, but we want to tell them they could happen or they will happen. And that just does not, that reality, it just doesn't work that way for a kid. And so every time you put that off, the the price gets higher. You know, it's a more important thing and a more important thing and a more important thing. So the sooner, the better. I think we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over and over again about that. Yeah. I do. I have a son that's eight and I have to tell myself, I have to, <laughs> yeah. I have to be like, Amber, you know, you said that on YouTube last week. You better, you better do it. It's hard. It's not our instinct. 
<laughs> it mm-hmm. is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not our instinct. So talk about, somebody asked a question, uh, what chemicals increase in the brain that increases anxiety, I guess, with the, the marijuana? Whoever asked that question might might regret that they asked that. I'm going to give you a really nerdy answer here. You might say, oh, I wish I wouldn't ask that. Um, you actually, what happens is, is you start to get a, a decrease in um, serotonin which is a chemical that makes you feel good. And you get an increase in a chemical called glutamate, which is sort of an anxious key you up kind of chemical. And the reason that happens is because you're, if you're taking in a substance all the time, your brain is actually trying to get you back to normal. So whatever the drug does for you, your brain does the opposite, trying to get you back to normal. So if you take a stimulant per se, your brain releases a whole lot of like depressant, trying to get you back to level or well, you're trying to get here and your brain's trying to get here. And so it becomes this war between you and your, and your brain. So whatever it is that the drug feels like it does for you, you will get the opposite reaction. So if you're taking stimulants, what ends up happening is you feel depressed and crashed all the time. If you're drinking or smoking marijuana to deal with your anxiety, what ends up happening is you have an increase in those chemicals and then you feel more depressed and anxious, which kind of result in there in your head. It's like, well, I just need to use more or need to do a better job of that or something like you just keep trying harder. And the more you try, the worse that brain chemical stuff happens. <clears throat> Not only that, but then you have all the other pieces of it, of the relationship messes that it starts to cause and the, the other problems. So when the, when their life starts falling apart, essentially everyone's mad at them, their grades suck, they got kicked off the team or whatever it is. Now they don't have any oxytocin in their brain. Now they feel disconnected. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. So it, it's an increase in negative chemicals and it's a decrease in the good chemicals that would keep you um, safer or less vulnerable to addiction. And so it, it, it all just kind of happens at once. And so if they're in that, if they've reached that point, what would you say the next step is? If they're to that point where they're already addicted, I think the next step would probably be to see if you could get them to talk to someone or get some help. And that can be tricky too. And a lot of times what you want to do is you want to try to, I call it coming in through the side door and not the front door. So I wouldn't necessarily say something like you have a drug problem. You have to go to rehab. (laughs) Don't do that. Mm -hmm. So you seem really depressed lately. There's be a complaint that the person has. Maybe the complaint is that, you're too strict on them and the family fights all the time. We'll use that. Maybe the complaint is I'm depressed. Maybe the complaint is I can't focus. Whatever it is that they feel like is the problem, use that as a reason and say, well, let's get you in to talk to someone about that. But you need to make sure that person, that person that you, that they go to talk to knows that this other thing is going on over here, but you have to kind of ease that other part in. Otherwise you just get the immediate wall. So really listening to what they're saying that they're struggling with and then being able to repeat that back to them in a caring way of, I want you, whatever this is, I want you to feel better. Mm -hmm. Right. You may know it's coming from the drug problem, but if you come directly at that as the issue, you'll get the wall. Yeah. And so it's almost like you're going to step around that, that landmine trigger button because you know, it's sitting right there. So I'm going to get in there, but I'm going to step right around that and come sneak it up in the back and not hit that button. Where they get resistant, the automatic. Because yeah, they feel off. like the substance is the only thing that helps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to they're gonna hang on to that for dear life. And so it's like the harder you try to 
pull them off of that, the harder they're going to cling. So you want to, you want to come around at the back door with a young person. Wow. That's so helpful. Um, you say enabling versus helping. You said it's always a battle of the heart and the head. Mm-hmm. You have a formula. Can you share that? I do that? have a formula. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when um, my formula for helping versus enabling is you want to match their effort. So if they take a step, you take a step. They take 10 steps, you can take 10 steps. So there is no, you can do this, but you can't do that. That's not the formula. You can do as much or as little as they do. So as long as they're helping and you're helping and they're helping and you're helping, you'll, you'll leave those interactions with a good feeling because helping people makes you feel good. And so you're going to know you're in the helping zone because you feel positive. When you help someone out, it kind of makes your day. You feel really good about yourself for the whole day. When you start taking more steps than they're taking, what happens eventually is you build a resentment about it. You become frustrated because they don't appreciate it. You become frustrated because they're not doing their part. And that turns you into a different person. That turns you into an angry person and a nagging person and a controlling person. And so a good indicator that you've moved over into enabling is really a feelings check. If you're feeling resentful and angry and put out and used and abused, then you've moved over into the enabling category. I love that. That's so helpful. Paying attention to how we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Resentment's a big one. Right. Yeah. Helping feels good. If it's not making you happy or helping you feel good, then it's not in the helping category. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's very helpful. I'll just ask one more question, then we'll, we'll wrap up. I want to send the research. Okay, this is good. To my son, as he is chemically informed, he is obsessed with the scientific information and formation of drugs. And I know this mom, he researches all about drugs. I'm wanting to I don't think he smoked marijuana yet, but she's wanting to send him the the research. So is that going to backfire if she tries and does that? What would you say to that? Um, I would say 90% of the time that is going to backfire. But if he... If he is into that and does want to research, then one way you might could say is you could say, well, I want you to get a rounded look at everything. Because what happens is is they research, but they literally filter out subconsciously sometimes, and they only look for the research that suits what they want it to be. And they filter out everything else. Sometimes they know they're doing that, but a lot of times it's just sort of a subconscious thing we all do. We all want to sort of look for what fits our theory. Mm-hmm. And so you just want to say, if they're researching, say, let's research together or whatever. I found this article. Let me see yours. You know, come at it from a, an alignment perspective. But you really can only do that if they, if they are interested in research and do want to look at articles or something like that. If you're just sending them just because, you're just going to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here she goes again. Yeah. So asking, yeah, you're researching this. Uh, would you be open Yeah. to what I found out and see what they have to say? If the issue is marijuana, which it is usually for kids, that's the first thing. There's a brand new book that's out that I have just read, and it's called Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And that book is cram-packed with what the real research is which is very counter what culturally we're being fed of. It's harmless. It's not addictive. None of those things are true, but there's so much lobbying going on for the legalization that everyone just sort of believes it like adults and kids alike. And so you want to know the truth. I wouldn't necessarily give the kid that book, but if the parent wants to know sort of the real deal, 
I'd take a look at that and then figure out how to subtly sort of put those seeds in in the right moments. Yeah, that's very helpful. She said, thank you. That was very helpful. So tell everybody where they can find you, Amber. The best place to find me is on YouTube and the channel is called Put the Shovel Down. And there are tons and tons of videos on there. There are probably 50 videos on boundaries alone. I think I could just keep because that's such the big question usually. And there's a whole playlist about enabling versus helping too. And anything in there will apply not just to drugs and alcohol, but will apply to any kind of teenager parent relationship. There really is just good boundaries. It's just that when you're dealing with drug and alcohol, you got to get expert level, like ninja level with the boundaries. Mm -hmm. But any of the stuff works in pretty much any situation. That's what I thought. You talk about family systems and the different roles we play and Mm -hmm. why punishment doesn't work and... I thought so much of this, even if you're not dealing with addiction, is very good information. Just mm-hmm. with how to have healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It, so. it really is just teaching you good, healthy communication, boundaries. It's, it will keep you feeling better and your relationships better. So. And if somebody's having a struggle with a kid or a loved one that has an addiction, they can call your practice and mm-hmm. you actually have people that facilitators that will meet, will talk to them over the phone and set up like three calls to help them through that process. Correct. Right. We do like some coaching, some um, over the phone coaching. We don't get into like long-term therapy with people that aren't local just because that's a lot to do over the phone. But a lot of times parents have a question or concern, like what do I do about this? And they really just want some advice or some feedback about particular situations. And and we have um, staff here that, that can help walk you through that. Where to let go, where to move forward, how to do that whole process. I call it, you know, when to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, when to run, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Thank, thank you for you. being with me and for all the wonderful things that you're doing to healing and hope and recovery to families. And thanks to you, Cheryl. I've read a lot of the blogs and things that you wrote and we're, we're in perfect alignment. So anything Cheryl says, I'm backing up. <laughs> I'm signing Wonderful. off on it. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to do this again. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. I hope you found today's episode encouraging and helpful. And if you did, I'd love you to follow the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I also invite you to check out our website at momsoftweensandteens.com, where you will find the show notes and much more. And we've also recently launched Moms of Tweens and Teens University, where you will find many resources, workshops, and downloads that are specifically geared to support moms raising tweens and teens. You can find the university at MOTS, M-O-T-T-S, university.com. Have an awesome week and see you next time.